As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. episode 118 of the Keith Law Show. I'll be joined today by author David Grand to talk about his new book, The Wager. Uh, You may be familiar with his work, uh, some of his previous work. He also wrote the book Killers of the Flower Moon, which is going to be a movie uh, on Apple TV Plus releasing later this year. Also the book The Lost City of Z, which uh, was a movie, came out a couple of years ago, which was also adapted, I should say, into a movie. I am a huge fan of David's writing and I'm very, very excited uh, for this conversation. Uh, in the meantime, I've been a little bit absent from The Athletic just because uh, I got sick. Um, I got not COVID, so it felt a lot like COVID. According to the home test, I didn't have COVID. I have questions, certainly, but I was pretty sick uh, for about a day or so and then uh, had the uh, wonderful lingering cough that I get basically whenever I get any kind of respiratory infection, like a mild cold, doesn't matter. I'll have a cough for two weeks. Uh, It's great. It's great. If anyone has a couple of spare lungs they'd like to throw my way, feel free. Uh, I will be returning uh, probably later this week with a draft blog post. I was out briefly in Southern California, saw a couple of prospects there. We'll be seeing a couple more draft prospects this week. And then uh, hitting some minor league games, too. The minor league season is completely underway. Blue Rocks had their home opener. I was there sort of in a non-work capacity, just go support the local team. Um, did see a little bit of Kumar Rocker while I was there. Uh, he was 94, 95, pretty good slider, probably a better slider than I had seen from him when I saw him before the draft in June of 2022. Of course, we'll see how that holds up. He did dominate in a very short outing, but also he is way too advanced to be in high. I almost look at this as a tune-up or a rehab outing for him. And the Blue Rocks, my hometown team here in Wilmington, uh, are led by James Wood, whose name you might know from the Juan Soto trade. And uh, I've seen a little bit of Wood before, but this was probably the the best I'd seen him run and the best I'd seen him play center field, uh, both of which extremely impressive, especially for somebody of his size. 
Now I'm very excited to be joined by the author David Gran, whose new book, The Wager, A Tale of Shipwreck, Mutiny, and Murder, is due out on April 18th. He's also the author of Killers of the Flower Moon, which has been adapted by some guy named Martin Scorsese into a film that's coming out on Apple TV this fall. David, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. So I loved Killers of the Flower Moon, just to mention, too, there's a really great audiobook of that. But today we're going to talk primarily about The Wager, which uh, I tore through in about two, two and a half days on my recent spring training trip to Arizona. It's absolutely fascinating, but I also thought it was kind of obscure from today's vantage point. Like I don't think many people know about the ship, know about the story. It's... I sort of wrote in my notes here, this isn't even the most famous mutiny in British naval history. So <laughs> how did you first stumble on this story and, and then discover that there was enough here to make a whole book out of it? Yeah, so uh, it was interesting. I've actually always been fascinated by mutinies, including the more famous, the mutiny of the bounty. <laughs> um, and, uh, and also like even in films like Crimson Tide and, uh, you know, it's just the kind of a staple of literature. And I think in part because... Um, it's really interesting when um, it's a very distinct kind of rebellion when it is part of a military organization whose very mission is to impose order. So what causes um, members of a military organization to suddenly rebel? Are they these kind of outlaws? Or as they're often depicted in a film, is there something rotten at the core of the system that justifies the rebellion and maybe gives it some nobility? So in any case, I always was interested in that. And I was um, doing some research on mutinies while looking for a new book. And lo and behold, I came across an 18th century journal written by John Byron, who had been a 16-year-old midshipman when the voyage set out. The book is old and brittle with faded text, and um, and uh, it's written in archaic English with stilted prose and F's as S's. And yet the more I read it, the more spellbound I was because it was describing things like typhoons and tidal waves and what he called the perfect hurricane and icebergs and earthquakes and then a shipwreck and then being castaways on an island um, and then this insurrection on the island in which many of the men turned upon each other in this real life Lord of the Flies. And I realized that this little odd journal held the seeds to one of the most extraordinary sagas of survival and adventure I had ever come across. On top of that, John Byron went on to become the grandfather of the poet Lord Byron, whose work was greatly influenced by what he referred to as my great granddad's narrative. So I thought I had the seeds of a, of a great deal, but I yet, you know, to your question of, well, you know, kind of what's its resonance? Why, why this story? And the more I looked into it, um, what intrigued me as much as what had happened on the island was what had happened after several of the castaways made it back to England. And thereafter, they've waged a war against all these elements, including scurvy and storms and, and whatnot. They are suddenly summoned to face a court-martial, and after everything they've been through, they may be hanged for their alleged crimes on the island. And so hoping to save their lives and to sway public opinion, they publish various accounts of what had happened on the island, and they begin to wage a war over the truth. It just to kind of button that up is 
so I was looking into this, not yet committed fully yet to doing a book. And I would go to the archives, read these various old accounts. Then I would come home and I'd flip on the news, you know, on TV and cable. And, you know, they'd be talking about alternative facts and so-called fake news and disinformation. And I was like, whoa, this is so odd. And then I would go to the archives and I would be reading about the story. And there was like a war over who would get to tell the history and efforts by those in power to cover up the history. And then I would come home and there are battles over what books could be taught, including even Killers of the Flower Moon. And I thought, oh my goodness, like this weird 18th century story is not only gripping, it's not only this insane gripping sea yarn, but it's also like a parable for our own times. One of the challenges that I imagine came about in writing this book in that, just speaking as a reader, I, I, I think you tackled successfully, but you have a lot of different narratives that probably conflicted quite a bit in, in many of these journals and other publications that you're talking about. So can you tell me a little bit about the process of trying to weave them together, especially when you're not 100% sure who's telling the truth? In fact, I, I would imagine there are certain points where you say, I have no idea who's telling the truth out of all these accounts. Yeah. So, um, you know, it is a classic war over the truth. And I, one of the things that drew me to it is that you can really document how each person is shading the story. And I think it gets at something very larger about the way we all tell stories. We all try to emerge as the, the hero of them to live with what we've done or haven't done now. In their case, if they didn't tell a convincing tale, they could literally be hanged. So the stakes are <laughs> life and death in the way yep. they the way they tell their story. And so I wanted to find a structure that got at that and could illuminate that and also be transparent about the very question you just said, which is what is the truth? Um, and so I chose to tell the story from three, principally from three conflicting perspectives of three members of the wager. One member was the captain, David Cheap. He was somebody who on land was always kind of chased by creditors and facing defeats. But at sea, he had always found refuge and he had finally attained on this voyage what he had always longed for, his dream of captaining his own warship and possibly capturing a lucrative prize, a treasure ship. Um, and then the other perspective is from the gunner, John Bulkley, who in many ways was the most skilled seaman on the wager. And he was an instinctive leader, but because he didn't come from the aristocracy, he knew it was unlikely that he would ever be able to become captain of a ship. And then the third perspective is from the young John Byron, the childlike eyes who's kind of witnessing this, who's kind of filled with romance when he wets, when he sets out and then must come of age amid the horrors of the elements and the horrors unleashed by his own seamen. And so by showing each of their accounts, hopefully I can illuminate for the reader, how each of them is shading their stories. What's interesting is they generally agree on the basic facts. They don't, they don't, you know, they don't so much outright lie as what they decide to leave out of their own accounts or what they choose to burnish or what they choose to edit. Um, so you might have one of them say, I was forced to proceed to extremities on the island. And then you'll look at the other account describing that same situation. And the person will say, oh yeah, he shot him right in the head. That was the force to proceed to extremities. So you begin to see the shading. And I think the reader can both gain insights into, the, into these characters by what they're emphasizing or what they're leaving out. And hopefully I leave it to the reader's judgment to try to ascertain the truth, which I think you can kind of do, but 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 I do leave that up to the reader and the reader's judgment. 
Do you feel like there is a villain in this story? Because I can't, again, I keep coming back to, you know, the HMS Bounty where I read the book. I think I read it an abridged version of the book as a child and then read the actual book as an adult and watched <clears throat> one of the movies. Yeah. The one that won the Academy Award in the 30s, I think it was, yes. which was not great. Most of those early Academy Award winners have not aged very well. <laughs> and I, I, I won't vouch that I paid attention through the entire thing. But of course, all of those have a slant. And you're not you're not trying to come in with a, with a slant to your story. And you're trying to convey this narrative as faithfully as you can. And I came out of it thinking, I don't know that there's really a villain. There, You could argue there's an antagonist, but you can also see his side. And I think you're, by, by using his narrative also, you do a good job of representing all of those sides. And it made me come out saying, yeah, I like this version more than this, but I think this, this guy comes out a little bit better than that guy. But I, I'm not coming down very strongly. I'm all on say, Bulkley's side or all on Byron's side or, for that matter, all on Cheap's side. It was the one who I did ultimately come down and say, yeah, he's probably more at fault than the other people. Yeah, I think that's a really good observation in that it, it's just a story with not kind of reductive villains and heroes. You know, Killers of the Flower Moon was such a crystalline version of good and evil. And this is a story that's more murky. Um, the, the, the Each person is fallible uh, and deeply human and the island and this 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 voyage becomes a kind of laboratory that tests the human condition under very extreme circumstances and inevitably you slow it slowly see it begin to reveal the hidden nature of each person and you see the good and you see the bad and you see those often in the same person you could you could at one moment be following somebody and be struck by their acts of courage gallantry and bravery and then several moments later suddenly recoil at some shocking act of brutality um and so you i think you see the whole spectrum of human nature being played out and you can you know, I my job as a writer, I never see my job as to absolve people or to, you know, um, you know, overly sympathize necessarily. It's I'm just trying to render them as best I can the way they are with their flaws and their misperceptions and their goodness and often their badness uh, too. It seemed like you made a bit of a conscious choice also to avoid dwelling too much on just the physical misery of their time on wage, what, what we now call Wager Island or Isla Wager, if you want to look for it, as I did on Google Maps, <laughs> which um, it, but it's pretty it, – it is quite – I was saying to you, David, just before we started recording, too, I ended up down quite the rabbit hole, too, because I'm trying to trace, well, where might they have sailed and where did this particular longboat go? And it's all very – it's extremely forbidding. And there's still – there's nobody there. There's no – not even a settlement anywhere close to there. So they couldn't have washed up in a worse place, clearly. Um, but you made the choice not to spend too much time in the physical misery, which I appreciate it because I feel like we've seen that before. We've read that. Also, that's really – painful and uncomfortable to read like death by starvation is not pleasant so yes. instead I, I was actually i was impressed and pleased we don't spend a ton of time actually on the island you're fair that is actually a 
somewhat small portion of the book relative to what I expected. It is much more about yes. what led into it and what led after. For example, you talk a lot about the construction of these ships and why these ships ran aground or just simply fell apart so often, which was fascinating, something I had never seen before in any book I had ever read about ships, shipwrecks, mutinies, all of this, you know, naval history. Mm -hmm. So was that a conscious choice? And we're, you know, especially to delve into something, again, seem, seemingly as arcane as ship construction, but that ended up being, I thought, very illustrative to what came after and why these men ended up in this terrible situation. Yes, I, I, kind of, I thought that this was a story about a floating civilization that begins to unravel and to disintegrate and collapse on the island. So before you understand the collapse of this kind of floating fortress, which is the ship, the warship, you need to understand how it's built and, and what their life is like on it, how it's regimented and the civilization that exists, including the building of these ships. And the seeds of their destruction in many ways are planted at the very outset of the voyage, as the British Navy, uh, short of men, uh, begins to press many people, just rounding them up, going to cities and ports and looking if they have the telltale signs of a mariners, and then shoving them onto a boat under grates and, and thrusting them onto these voyage that's going to last for as long as three years unwillingly. Um, and they're still short of men, and they go and they actually round up people from a pensioner home, um, you know, retirement home, some of whom are in their 60s and 70s, many of whom are missing an assortment of limbs, some of whom are so sick, they are so sick before the voyage begins, they are being lifted on stretchers onto the boat to set off. And somehow this odd collection of people, um, many of them are willing and recalcitrant, along with others on the ship, including dandies and aristocrats and free black seamen and are all thrown together and somehow need to be formed into a band of brothers and they need to be uh placed on a on one of these warships which are these kind of engineering marvels of their time um you know three masted uh with cannons that make them lethal propelled by sail and yet also very vulnerable because they are made all of wood, which is very perishable. You know, they weren't made of iron. Um, and so they're all susceptible to the elements and to worms. And so you kind of need to understand that this, this, this world that is literally kind of built, this vessel that is built, it's like, a, it's as if you were building a globe, a small floating globe, you know, it was like an ark. It was like, you know I mean, it was like, um, oh gosh, I'm forgetting my uh, biblical figure, um, uh, placing them on the ark, the animals. Um, Noah. Noah, thank you. Yes. It's tired. It's an early morning. Um, yes, you, know, okay. <laughs> you know, putting certain people on the ship. And, and so, you know, they have to build the ship. A ship could be built from, you know, take 4,000 trees to build a single one of these warships. It has to both be a military instrument, but also serve as the home. And so you need to understand this kind of self-enclosed, claustrophobic, floating fortress and civilization if you're then going to understand what it means when it all collapses. So that's why I spent a lot of time doing that. I also just geeked out and became wildly fascinated by the sociology on these ships, by the way these ships were built and what it took. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? 
Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. One sort of unfortunate fact that, again, you sort of sent me down various rabbit holes online. So there's a scurvy outbreak on the oh, ship. Yeah. And scurvy yeah. is apparently also a pretty miserable way to die or just a pr- pretty miserable way to not die, as it turns out. And I thought, God, weren't they – hadn't they figured this out by now? Obviously, I knew scurvy was a thing, right? This is how we got British soldiers, British Navy uh, – uh, midshipmen, various were, were called limeys because there were citrus fruits on all of these boats to try to ward off scurvy. And it was about five years after the wager first set sail, I think, that the first experiment came, experiment so to speak, where they just gave gave citrus fruits to British sailors so that they wouldn't get scurvy. So it seemed also like there was a bit of, um, it was just very unfortunate timing this story happens 10 years later and if nothing else more men survive to the point of the shipwreck and then maybe what happens afterwards is i guess it could have been worse also i was thinking it was better because it was simply more manpower and they wouldn't have been quite so emaciated by the time they washed up but it was just this very unfortunate accident of timing maybe one of the last major such shipwrecks where they were also crushed by scurvy well so what's interesting about scurvy when you look back on the literature there were, it was actually, it was, there were a few officers who kind of realized, you know, without scientific knowledge that, you know, when some of their men had scurvy and they'd land on an island and eat fruit or vegetables, they would get better. But it, it was never kind of collectively recognized or incorporated. And it was actually after this expedition, not before, that one of the first major experiments took place. Um, uh, but even, and, and, and it really was kind of a blind study and they really did show that he, this, uh, this, this scientist really did, this doctor really did show that unquestionably citrus fruit helped people with scurvy. Even then though, it wasn't yet, you know, it's the sad part of knowledge. It still wasn't yet actually fully recognized by the Navy. So it would still take several, several more decades before ship, British ships and other naval ships began to carry citrus fruit and vegetables. And let's just talk a little bit about scurvy because so they set voyage, they set voyage and almost everything begins to go wrong. And you know, they have misery on the island, but they have kind of an earlier, earlier stages of descending into what I would call essentially a hell. So first they have to get around Cape Horn. And for those listeners who don't know Cape Horn, and they, maybe they've heard at the tip of South America, oh, the seas are bad. It was another thing I didn't know much about. And like, oh, yeah, the seas are really bad. And one of the reasons they're, they're really bad is because it's the only place, that, you know, it's just so interesting to me when you learn this stuff. It's the only place on the earth where the seas flow completely uninterrupted around the globe. They're not blocked by land. So waves can accumulate power over 
13,000 miles. I think that's right. 13,000 miles. A wave, a 90-foot wave could dwarf a map of a ship. Um, it's the strongest currents on in the world there. Kind of the water just shoots through this funnel. And then there are the winds, which can accelerate off into hurricane force and can reach as much as 200 miles per hour. Uh, the novelist Herman Melville, who later made this voyage, um, around the horn, uh, compared it to a descent into hell in Dante's Inferno. <laughs> um, and so the ships get there, the squadron, the wager is part of the squadron of ships. They are chasing the Spanish galleon filled with treasure, which is known as the prize of all the oceans. And as they're rounding Cape Horn, they are just battered by storms day and night, day and night. The ships are breaking apart. The wager loses a mass. And Captain David Cheap and all the other officers know they are going to need every person on these ships if they're going to persevere, because these ships take hundreds of people to operate. And lo and behold, what happens? Scurvy. They are hit by scurvy at this time. Um, they knew what they knew. They knew the term scurvy. They used the term scurvy, but they didn't know what caused scurvy. Their teeth began to fall out. Their hair fell out. The cartilage that glued together, their their bones seemed to be coming undone. There's one story that really struck me. There was a, a, a report of a man who had been in a battle five decades earlier where he had fractured a limb. And now suddenly that long since healed fracture just suddenly mysteriously shatters in the same spot. The other thing I didn't know about scurvy at the time was how it can affect your senses. And um, it's a vitamin deficiency. And as one of the seamen described, the disease got into our brains and we went raving mad. They descended, many of them descended into lunacy and hundreds and hundreds of them perished. Their bodies just unceremoniously tossed overboard. There's a line from the poet, if I can get it right, Lord Byron, um, John Byron's uh, grandson, where he described it as, Without a grave, unknelled, uncoffined, and unknown. Hopefully I got that right. But in any case, it's, it, it just gives you a sense of what kind of epitaph you had just going to the depths of the bottom of the sea. So that's happening. This has all happened even before they've shipwrecked. It, uh, you, one of the other obstacles they dealt with was they didn't actually know where they were. And at one point around Cape Horn, when they're deciding whether they need to turn back or not, which is in and of itself, obviously a very difficult decision to make because turning back was not easy, but continuing forward into the unknown wasn't easy. They didn't necessarily know where they were because we are before the invention of the chronometer. So they might know their latitude, but they certainly didn't know their longitude. And there was a long section where I don't want to spoil too much, but essentially they go the wrong way because they cannot properly figure out where they are, or what direction they're heading in. And it seems like, that was yet another case. There were so many different things here. Well, if only this were a little later, if only this happened. But the confluence of all of these things going wrong, obviously it's why it makes for such a riveting story. But it was a number of these little things that made it, the story that it is also made it seem incredibly foolhardy to me. So why did anybody ever leave England? Well, I think some of them left unwillingly. <laughs> Thrown out to that ship, they didn't want to go. Very true. Uh, some went with dreams of glory and wealth, and others went unwillingly. Um, but yes, um, uh, you know, I, I, um, they 
because they did not, they could determine their latitude because they could read the stars, but mm-hmm. because they did not have reliable clocks, uh, they could not determine their longitude. And so they had to rely on what was known as dead reckoning, which to mm-hmm. essentially amounted to, you know, informed guesswork and a leap of faith. And there's a good reason why it is called dead reckoning because you often mm-hmm. ended up dead and they're, they're they they turn out on multiple occasions just to be wildly wrong about where they actually are on the map so you mentioned several points at several points in the book that their stories the various stories from the returning castaways from captain cheap to byron and on down influenced a number of enlightenment thinkers from philosophers like Jean-Jacques Rousseau, even to the, you know, who we now know as a scientist, Charles Darwin. So can you talk a little bit about how their stories resonated and what exactly was it that these various philosophers and scientists ended up taking away from the various narratives of the survivors? Yeah. So um, when um, these accounts, you know, it's funny because this story is now uh, virtually forgotten. I mean, I had certainly never heard of it. And I think if you probably asked 99% of even people in Britain if they've heard of it, they, they wouldn't have heard of this uh, this saga. But it was once a sensation. And after several of the castaways released their accounts and were facing court-martial, you know, it depicted the British Empire in a very scandalous light because it undercut the central claim of the ruthless expansion of the British Empire, which was somehow that their civilization was superior to others. And yet here on the island, um, they had slowly descended into a Hobbesian state of depravity in which their officers often uh, uh, and their crewmen, um, the so-called apostles of Western civilization, uh, behave more like brutes than gentlemen. Um, uh, so those accounts caused a sensation And then there is kind of a triumphant narrative that England will kind of seize upon to kind of, you know, erase part of the story and burnish another part of the story. Um, And that account also uh, becomes a kind of smashing bestsellers. And these accounts were poured over, as you say, by the philosophers of the day. Um, Sometimes Rousseau and Voltaire were pouring them over partly because they brought back early reports of other places. Um, that were unknown. Um, they, also, they also obviously highlighted the conduct uh, of um, these various officers and seamen uh, during the expedition. Darwin had brought these accounts with him on the voyage of the Beagle and would consult them. Um, and then uh, Herman Melville in his novel, one of his novels cites them. Um, and Patrick O'Brien, another one of the great novelists of the sea, uh, one of his early novels before his kind of Master and Commander Masterful series uh, was based loosely uh, on the Wager Disaster. There's even a character named John Byron. So these stories kind of radiated out and had influence. And of course, one of the themes of the book um, is how that happens. And it's about not only how individuals shape their stories to serve their self-interest, but also ultimately how empires shape their story to serve their self-interest. And one of the stories that kind of gets burnished and passed down is this almost kind of alternative history, this mythic version of what happened that kind of glosses over in the end all the horrors. Did anything change for 
obviously we talked about the scurvy situation, so I'm thinking aside from that, but did anything change just for sailors in the wake of everything that happened in the wager, whether it's how ships were captained or how ships were constructed, or was this yet another, I mean, like you mentioned with scurvy too, where they sort of knew what the cure probably was and for decades they went on still not doing something about it. It keeps reminding me of the Ignaz Semmelweis story of the guy who realized you just had to wash your hands to get rid yes, of germs, the germs right? yes. and, and literally died in an, insane, in an insane asylum because nobody would listen to him um, and they thought he was, it was not possible for gentlemen doctors to possibly carry germs on their hands and it, it, you know, it seems like we, I mean we still do this today, I'm not going to claim we're any better as a species, but Certainly a lot of these stories back then are lessons unheeded or unlearned. And it's and the wager's story had plenty of lessons. Did anybody learn anything? Did anything get better in the wake of all of these men, the, the men who did survive com- coming back and publishing their accounts? Yes. Yeah, so um, the commodore, the head of the expedition of this squadron of five ships, was a man named George Anson, who was a very skilled command commander. Uh, had a real mastery over his ship. And he he did many of the lessons that were wrought from this expedition when he eventually makes it back to England and he is promoted and eventually is promoted to the point where he becomes in charge of the British Navy. And he implements various reforms to professionalize the force to try to avoid the kind of um, you know, these kind of pensioners who were kind of thrown on the ship and this, you know, who were so sick. Um, also making, changing the rules to create a clearer uh, discipline and order and regimen, even after a shipwreck. So for example, on the wager, one of the questions that arose was once they were on the island, were they still subject to military regulations? He specifically changed the rules. So he really did try to, you know, in subtle ways, improve and modernize the British Navy based on this expedition. And many historians, although he's now kind of been overshadowed by other um, naval figures, uh, is often considered the father of the British Navy. The one element where it didn't cause a corrective was towards um, the imperialistic nature and venture of the British Empire and the destruction that that ended up imposing on such a large scale, um, as well as slavery. So I do have to ask, I, I love Killers of the Flower Moon. I've been waiting to see this movie for a while now. I think the release date is now October of this year, which puts it right into awards season also. Um, I don't know how much you were directly involved in the film. I'm curious if you've seen any of it so far, if there's anything you can tease here. This DiCaprio guy seems like he might be the next big thing. So he maybe he's <laughs> a name to watch. Yeah. So, you know, my involvement is limited. You know, we, we talk about the structure on a ship, you know, there's like the, there's like the captain, you know, with a movie and then like on a ship, everyone gets structured. Then there's like the Lieutenant, then you go to the, you know, the petty officers and the warrant officers. Then you go to the able seamen and the forecastle men, and then you go to the ordinary seamen. And then you go to the people who are on the waist of the ship. They're known as the wasters, and they're often the landlubbers who are there or the least skilled and just have manual labor. Well, that's the author when you get to it. <laughs> when you get to a movie production, you're the you're like the waster. You're just in the middle of the ship. But um, uh, but no, I watching the way they have adapted this 
story, this history, it's a true story, um, which is about really one of the more sinister crimes in American history and one of the worst racial injustices. And since I don't know much about films, you know, my hope with these projects is always to get it into the hands of people to share that kind of fierce commitment to the story. And Scorsese and DiCaprio and Lily Gladstone and De Niro and everyone who worked on this production, I think really did. And I think that the, the thing to tease or the thing to, to underscore, which was really most important to me, was very early on, they began to work with the Osage Nation um, in how to tell the story, to shape the story. Um, the Osage Nation, uh, Chief Standing Bear, um, and others lobbied for them to film on location, which is pretty rare, I guess, these days. I don't know much, but I think it's pretty rare. And they end up filming on Osage territory in the places where many of these events transpired, sometimes even in buildings where some of these events transpired. Um, there are many Osage actors with talking roles. Um, the Osage were involved in um, teaching the Osage language to the various actors um, and helping to revive uh, this, this wonderful language um, from the costumes to the production design. And, you know, the craziest thing was when I went to the set, it was completely surreal because, you know, I work with words. I create, look at documents and I look at photographs too, but I create visual images in my brain from mostly text, from words. And then you suddenly show up and here is a visual, a literal manifestation of what had been in my head from documents, you know, where they have reconstructed this world. And I never liked the term surreal because it, it always seems kind of vague to me, but it really was surreal because, you know, it was such a detailed replication of, of, of this world. Um, and my um, great hope with this film, um, and I think the acting is really quite remarkable. I think people will find, I think, um, from Lily Gladstone and, um, and DiCaprio, I think people are going to be really struck and disturbed by that relationship um, and the way they play it. Um, but, you know, my hope is when I wrote that book was to hopefully address my own ignorance and the ignorance of many others outside the Osage Nation who never learned anything about this history. You know, we had basically never been taught it or we had just excised it from our consciousness. And my hope is that the film will go even further in sharing this history to others, which will then lead people like you when you read The Wager, hopefully to go down rabbit holes and to begin to do their own research and their own looking. Um, maybe they'll visit the Osage Nation, they'll go to the museum the way I did early on. Um, maybe they'll learn about the Osage language. So I think that is the way, you know, kind of history and knowledge grows, which is kind of why we hopefully, uh, hopefully do these things. And um, I was also really, obviously over the moon when um, Scorsese and DiCaprio said they wanted to team up again to do the wager. Absolutely. <laughs> yes, I'm dying to see who DiCaprio ends up playing. The older he gets, right, as you start, you still I'll, think of DiCaprio I'll, I'll as a young I'll, man. I'll tell you who he plays. He plays, oh, okay. he, I'll tell you who he plays. He plays Ernest Burkhart, um, who marries Molly Burkhart um, in, in, the real, in, the, in the real story. He is one of the white settlers um and has a very complicated very complicated character 
um, that I think DiCaprio just peels away uh, throughout the film, getting to the core um, of his nature. My guest today has been the great David Grant, the author of the new book, The Wager, A Tale of Shipwreck, Mutiny, and Murder, due out on April 18th. And of course, as we were just discussing, also of the book Killers of the Flower Moon, which has been adapted by Martin Scorsese and will be out on Apple TV hopefully at some point this fall. David, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much, Keith. That's all for this week's show. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, as I've said a few times recently, this show is going to be as weekly as I can possibly make it uh, around upcoming travel. I do have a fair bit of travel, though mostly short trips coming up in the next couple of weeks, and then we'll be bearing down more on minor league stuff. So the draft stuff will shift more to writing, less to actually seeing players, while I'll be going out and seeing uh, as many minor league games as I can uh, in terms of prospects who come close to me here in the mid-Atlantic region. Um, I will also have another board game review up over at Paste of Twilight Inscription, which is uh, probably the longest roll and write game I have ever played or seen. I actually mentioned it in my piece at Wirecutter earlier this month where I talked about roll and write games as a trend and gave recommendations of five of them. I actually had Twilight Inscription there for people who are particularly hardcore gamers and don't mind sitting down for two hours or more at the table. I have to admit, it's a little bit much. My attention span is not quite that long. I'm the guy who complains whenever a movie is over two and a half hours. Like, no, um, that's, that's too, that is two sittings at that point. You have already broken this up into two separate sittings for me. It's just not possible for me to sit still for that long. Anyway, that is all for this week's show. Thank you so much for joining me. Stay safe.